Welcome to Morning Commute. I'm Brad Doles. And I am Sam Albert. You know, Brad and I have been friends for many years. Uh, that's true. Probably, I don't know, five or more. And we've built this friendship on making conversations that we talk about basically anything we can think about. It's like no topic is off the table. And so we wanted to open that up and share that kind of talk with other people. Yeah. So we devised this podcast. It's a 20 to 30 minute podcast in which we just kind of freeform talk about the things that we talk about all the time. We hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Morning Commute. All right, this is episode seven, right? This is it. I think I did ego disillusion and ayahuasca and I did drinking. So I think maybe this is the one where you get to choose. Ooh, what's left? Oh, you know what is on this list? The French girl. Yes. So give us a bullet points, uh, Cliff Notes version of what you meant when you wrote on the list, The French Girl. I read this incredible book. Sure. It's called The Only Girl in the World by Maude Julien. Mm -hmm. True story, allegedly, memoir about this little girl who was raised by a nutball's father. Mm -hmm. had decided that he wanted to raise a superhuman. Right. And so using certain philosophies and actually some Nazi philosophies, he raised his daughter in this remote area of France on this cordoned off property and literally wanted her to be superhuman. And so the mm -hmm. book followed her from the time she was born, actually from before she was born, he sought a woman to be the baby maker. He found this family that had lots of poor children and said, I'll take this daughter off your hands. Great. At and the age of what? I think she was eight or 12 or something. Yeah. So in the story, not a woman yet. Not a woman yet. What he did was he sent her off to boarding schools. He had a lot of money. And to this day, I can't figure out how he made his money. And I've tried to do some research on that. But he um, sent her to all these elite boarding schools educated her and then when she came of age he had a child with her when she was like 20 i think 20 either 22 or 26 he had mm -hmm. a child with her and that child was maud and from the very beginning of her life he treated her the, the best way i know how to describe it is if you've watched umbrella academy mm -hmm. and the way that he treated his children from what i gathered from this book that's the way this guy treated his daughter there was no affection. There were rules for everything because he wanted to teach her how to survive. Mm -hmm. He had some crazy beliefs about spies and they were going to kidnap her and try to get information out of her. And so he, from a very young age, would ply her with alcohol to try, speaking of liquor, which is what we talked about in an earlier episode, he would get her to drink because he wanted her to have a high tolerance for alcohol in case someone kidnapped her, tried to get her drunk. So how much is her mom around during this? From what I gather from the book, the mom was there from for the whole her whole life mm -hmm. and participated in this training, but was just as brainwashed and terrified of the father as Maud was. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, the mom was also a victim. The right, because she was raised by the man. The mom was eight when she met the person she had the child with. Fully indoctrinated into his system of thinking. He would wake the daughter up in the middle of the night. This is Maud. When she was five, six, seven years old. And then lock her in the basement in the dark where they had rats because mm -hmm. he wanted her to meditate on death. She had to eat food in a certain amount of time in a certain way. 
she had to be skilled in everything. So he taught her Latin, he taught her French. She took music lessons, but she also had to learn how to build a brick wall. And he would wake her up in the middle of the night for drills where she had to walk around the dark property and hit certain locations and turn the lights on in those locations. Mm -hmm. But it was pitch black outside. So she had to somehow intuit where things were on the sprawling property. Right. On one level, I was like, I can't believe this actually happened. It sounds outrageous. Which it might not have. It might not have. The woman now, from what I understand, is in her 60s or 70s, and she's a psychotherapist who mm -hmm. specializes in issues of control and abuse. Mm -hmm. So a skeptical person would say, which happened first? Did her knowledge of abuse and power happen because of her specific training? Or did she was she interested in that because of her horrible childhood. Do you have evidence that even that is true? That she's a psychotherapist? Yeah. Uh, the only evidence I have is from newspaper articles that I've read about her. People talking about her story? Yeah. And because of that, I wouldn't be inclined to think that they had vetted her story to a certain extent. Her father passed away. Her mom, from the articles that I read, and I honestly can't remember what year these articles are from. I mean, they're in the 2000s. I just don't know if it was this year or a couple years ago. Uh, her mom was still alive. And I don't know if she has a relationship with her mother. But I find it so fascinating what we consider normal. The only reason she understood that her life was abnormal was because her parents would let her read some children's books mm -hmm. where kids were tucked in at night and were given treats and had hot chocolate and people said, I love you. And she didn't realize, oh, that is a way people live. What was her relationship to her mother? The father's whole existence was to raise this superhuman. Mm -hmm. The mother's whole purpose was just to be his assistant in this endeavor. So I think there was a lot of jealousy and a lot of potential abuse coming from the father toward the mother if the daughter wasn't successful. The thing I find most interesting is that at a certain point, her father let her go study music with a man who was very clear that she was growing up in an abusive household. And the guy kind of rescued her and um, brought her to his music school. And the father ended up marrying her off to someone else in the music school and said, you can stay married to him for six months, but you have to remain a virgin. And after that time, you come back, you divorce him and you come back to us in six months. And she just never went back. Uh -huh. There wasn't, I kept reading thinking, oh, there's going to be a moment where she has her, her lifetime TV movie moment where she's like, you're horrible, you're abusive, I'm leaving. And that never happened. She made her escape and just never went back. But it wasn't, it wasn't a climactic moment. And she said when she became a mother, because she had children of her own, she had no idea what mothering entailed because no one had ever mothered her. Right. She had to rely on her mother-in-law to teach her how to parent. So I, I asked you this question off the air when we were talking about this book a couple of days ago. And now that you've finished it, I'm curious, does she, does she feel like any of those skills that he was trying to unrealistically push into a child ever came in handy? In many ways, it helped her tolerate her childhood. Because mm -hmm. a lot of what he was trying to teach her was, I know one time she had to grab onto an electric fence and mm -hmm. hold it while she was getting shocked and not show any response to that. Mm -hmm. And so her ability to kind of step outside of pain mm -hmm. helped her during her abusive childhood, for sure. She also was, for the longest time, her father told her, I can read your mind. I know what's happening. Even when you don't know, I know what's happening. So you can't lie to me because I'll know. And 
it was really interesting. She tested it with little things. Right. You would ask her, how long did you read? You're supposed to read for 30 minutes. She only read for 29, but she'd say, yes, I read for 30. And he wouldn't know. And so then mm -hmm. the lies became bigger, but she was testing them methodically to make sure that he couldn't read her mind. Like velociraptors testing a cage. Exactly. Uh -huh. I'm always fascinated by books where it's like, what is a human capable of enduring? And what we convince ourselves is normal. And how do we redefine normal once we escape from an abnormal situation? Right. I think we have a lot of evidence to show that we can't know what normal is, at least from a child's perspective, right? Normal is just going to be whatever's presented to us. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you think it's possible to recover from anything? Do I think that any one person could overcome any event? Mm -hmm. I think anything is overcomable, but maybe not everything is overcomable from everyone. There's the nature versus nurture thing right mm -hmm. so there's all these things that that affect your life and how are you going to manipulate those things based on who you are genetically as a person some people can probably take on certain things that other people can't and it isn't even really a judgment call on anybody because we don't have any control over the genes that we're given. It's just what we mm -hmm. were given. There are two very famous Holocaust survivors who both wrote books of their accounts in the concentration camps. Mm -hmm. And one of them, Elie Wiesel, continued to write about the Holocaust and teach about the Holocaust for his whole life. And his mission was, we must never forget. And he became a professor. And then there's this other writer, his name is Primo Levi, and he also wrote a really searing account of his time in the camps as a young man. And they both survived the camps. Primo Levi ended up gassing himself. He committed suicide by gas. Mm -hmm. And I always wonder about that. Why one man turned this most horrific situation and it became almost like this mission for his guiding mission for his whole life versus this other man who escaped, who made it. And you think, oh my gosh, he's free, but he wasn't really free. And then ended up committing suicide in a manner that harkens back to what he had survived. So I don't think that's necessarily, although it could be, I don't think it's necessarily who they were genetically, who they're, how their brains were, but how you decide to write the framework of that event. Whether or not you decide that it will overcome your life is almost a decision on your part, right? Like, am I going to turn this in, into my meaning? Am I going to turn this into something that I, I let define me, but in the way that I take control of it? Or am I going to say that I'm going to let this define me and, and it won? From what I remember, if I'm remembering correctly, Primo Levi, he committed suicide. And one of the, the reasons that he offered was because he had seen how cruel humans could be to each other. And he just couldn't live with having seen the worst of what we do to each other. He couldn't uh -huh. look at people the same way ever again. Right. Then there's another guy, Viktor Frankl, who wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning, where the first half of the book is about his experience in the concentration camps, where he came up with his own psychological theory. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. It's called like logotherapy. And it's this idea that even in captivity, you can find your own freedom. Uh -huh. And so he created that system within the camps. And then when he got out, he used it as a psychological therapy method. Yeah, I mean, what do you think about how, how one deals with trauma? I've seen people who are crazy resilient. Mm -hmm. And I always wonder where that resilience, where, where does that come from? Is that baked into someone? 
Is it the product of the trauma that made them resilient? Why are some people more resilient than others? It takes a lot of different things to make a human being, right? There is the nature and there is the nurture. And at any one point in time, can you say, what is driving you right now? Is this because I'm a little bit my mom and I'm a little bit my dad and I have those genes in me? Or is it because over the course of time, I've gathered this information and this is how I think I I tackle these types of problems, not from what is inside of me, but what what I've learned. Mm -hmm. And of course, those two can't ever be pulled apart from each other because what you learn and how to deal with situations is also going to be influenced by who you are anyway and how you take that information in. You know, what's interesting. I took a sociology class in college. The one thing they talked about was there is a particular, back then, and by back then, I mean the 90s, they called them the indestructibles, there, that there were certain people who could survive just about anything mm-hmm. and just continued to bounce back. But the question that that doesn't answer is what created that? Right. And that would be really interesting to find out. Right. So what I think I'm going to do is Mm -hmm. figure out what creates that. And then I'm going to find a woman to make a daughter (laughs) with and see if I can make the perfect little girl. What could possibly go wrong? Right. Uh, Anything else that you wanted to say on, on that episode? Well, this is the flip side of that episode is now I'm reading another book sure. and it's called dog medicine. And it's about this woman who had a, it's true story. She had a nervous breakdown in her early twenties and a dog was instrumental in her recovery, which speaks to another way to recover from trauma. Her parents had to come gather her up. She lived in New York city and they drove her home to Ohio where she was just in a deep depression and they took her to a psychiatrist. So this was in conjunction with psychiatric help and some medicine, but she also adopted a little puppy and it gave her a reason to live. Uh Uh-huh. Is there a reason that you particularly find that? (laughs) Not at all. But the reason I bring out that second book is because I, I just find it interesting the things that people reach for, for survival. I think a lot of people lean on animals. Okay, one last thing. This is kind of depressing. I don't know if we want to end on this. There's another book. Uh It's a fiction book. It's called Hotel New Hampshire by John Irving. Uh And there's this one character who ends up committing suicide by jumping out of a window. Uh There's this other character that's like, here's the secret to life, essentially. And this is where this this girl, I think her name is Lily. This is where Lily went wrong. You have to get obsessed with something and you have to stay obsessed with something. Keep walking by open windows. That is the secret of life. Uh-huh. Get obsessed, stay obsessed, keep walking by the open windows. What does keep walking by the open windows mean? Because um, she jumped out of a window. Oh, I see. And so he's saying, find something that you can be super obsessed with and then just walk by every open window. Uh-huh. And I have to say, when you think about it, that does kind of, hone life down to a very bare bones essential form. I think we've talked a lot of times about deciding what your purpose is going to be. And I think that that purpose can be important and lost people can become depressed because of a lack of that purpose. People who define that purpose are probably more likely to push through. So the moral of today's story, get obsessed, stay obsessed. (laughs) 
And again, if anyone wants to check out this story, it's called The Only Girl in the World, and it's by Maud Julianne. All right. Um, okay. So that is our episode for today. Uh, I would encourage people to write in at morningcommutesambrad at gmail.com or leave a voicemail at, at anchor.fm forward slash morningcommutesambrad. That's right. All right. Goodbye, everybody. Bye. Bye.